brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. <clears throat> Beautiful kinfolk, let us pray. For you, O Lord, nothing is impossible. Speak again. We listen and wait upon your living word. Amen. I'm fascinated by this sending of the 70, this commissioning for these people to go into the towns that Jesus intends to go, he sends them first. This fascinates me because I'm not only a pastor in the United Church of Christ, but I'm also a pastor in the Disciples of Christ, uh, which is a similar denomination. Indeed, we call the Disciples our sister denomination. They're more prominent in the South. But the Disciples of Christ are known for serving communion to each other in their own homes without a pastor anywhere to be found. They go into their homes of each other and they simply do it because they're brought up doing it. It's a perfectly normal thing for them. And so I'm consistently trying to send my UC seers into each other's homes to serve communion. And it's like I've asked them to tread on snakes and scorpions with bare feet. They're like, I can't do that. I, what in the world? How do I do that? So I write out a little script for them to take with them. And this is similar to what Jesus Christ is doing here. He's sending them ahead of him. He's saying, you will do the things that I can do. I authorize it. So this preparation by what means ought they to prepare themselves to go on this impossible journey, he says to them, of course, pack a very, pack for every possible necessity. Bring all the money in the world so that you can purchase things if you don't need them. He says, you've got a plan for every contingency so that you control for what happens. Absolutely not. No, he says nothing of the sort. He says, carry no purse, no bag. Don't even wear shoes. Yeah, you won't need them. And then he sends them. This is so amazingly liberating to hear. But to me, it comes back to this idea and this notion of wealth, control of wealth. Wealth and our use of financial resources is so important to Jesus Christ that he talks about it 62 times in the Gospels. Compared to a lot of other issues, Wealth and our use of wealth seems to be very important to Jesus. And when he sends these 70 out ahead of them, he says to them, you have no need for it. Don't take anything with you. They'll feed you when you get there. In seminary, I had a friend named Andy who was a bicyclist, and he would ride his bicycle across the country from coast to coast. That was his thing that he loved to do. And one year, one summer, he was also a Disciples of Christ pastor. One summer, he decided he was going to do an experiment it was going to ride across the entire southern United States where Disciples of Christ churches are prominent. And he would make no provisions for where he would stay. But upon reaching a town, he would call up the Disciples of Christ church in that town and ask if he could sleep in their basement or their pews or just somewhere in the church. He did not spend a single night sleeping outside that entire trip. Every single town that he came to when he, when he rang up a disciples' church, they said, sure, you can crash on the couch in the fellowship hall or something like that. Making his own way like those 70 from town to town. But this issue of wealth is uh, famously brought up in the parable when Jesus Christ says that, yea, it is easier to pass a camel through the eye of a needle than it is for the wealthy person to enter the kingdom of heaven. The eye of the needle. Eye of the needle. Uh, I recently heard Pastor Joel Osteen referred to as uh, Old Eye of the Needle Joel. Uh, I thought that was interesting. Well, it's the 4th of July. 
And I, in the summer of 2008, during the 4th of July, I had a picnic where I barbecued some camel steaks. I was, this, I'm seeing looks of confusion. Uh, this is because I was in Palestine, uh, in the West Bank, and it was the 4th of July, and I wanted to have a picnic with steaks. So I had my own eye of the needle issue, because I could not find a decent ribeye in the West Bank to save my life. They had beef, but it was all halal beef or, or, or kosher. So it was all chopped up into little pieces for making kebabs. So I asked my friend Jamal how to get steaks. And he had no idea what I was talking about when I said steaks. And so I had to draw a picture of a steak on a grill. And he said, ah, Habibi, you need Jamal. And I said, yes, Jamal, you are my friend. I have come to you, Jamal, to get some steaks. And he said, no, Habibi, you need Jamal. I said, you are Jamal. He said, no, Jamal means camel. You need that. All right. He drew a picture of a camel. <laughs> he said, Jamal. And I said, your mother named you camel? And he said, a camel is a noble beast. And I said, people around here eat camels. And he said, Habibi. I said, OK. A few days later, I had acquired some steaks and some, some beers. And good beer is actually pretty easy to find in the West Bank. Um, Muslims don't usually drink alcohol, but there are hundreds of thousands of Christians in Palestine. And they have historically had breweries and wineries throughout the Holy Land. There's a winery south of Bethlehem that dates to the 4th century. We know, of course, Jesus also drank wine. Um, so, okay, I was one of only a handful of Americans in the entire West Bank at this time. It was mostly British people. I don't know what it is about the British, but they love to visit former parts of their own empire. Um, but I invited these British people to my 4th of July barbecue. And they came, perhaps out of a sense of irony. Did you know that they have a 4th of July in Britain? That's a joke. They have a 4th of July in every country. Just a fourth day of July. But the British came looking somewhat suspicious of my picnic, and I said, Happy Independence Day. And one of them said, Oh, oh, Independence Day, good thing too, good thing you fought. You won your independence, right? Otherwise you'd be you'd be just like Canada. Oh, how awful, right? I'd never thought of that. <laughs> but they drank my beer and they ate my food. And one of them said, Well, at least Americans know how to properly grill a steak. This is delicious. And I said, thanks. I said, I know, it's camel. <laughs> and they didn't come to my barbecue the next time. <laughs> they didn't let me cook at the summer parties. British people have strange hang-ups around food. OK. To return to this teaching of wealth, camels, and sending, going into the world without all of the material preparations that we believe that we'll need to control for the situation, well, some people say, no, the eye of the needle, it's just a really small gateway in uh, Jerusalem, in the temple. And if you really tried, you could put a camel, you could get them through the camel, you know, or turn the camel into stakes, and then you can fit those through the... Jesus wants us to think about our relationship with wealth and what we need when he's sending us out into the world. 16 out of the 36 parables that he teaches deal with possessions. One in every ten verses in the Gospels mentions money. Now, if we look at the Bible as a whole, there's less than 500 verses about prayer. There's less than 500 verses about faith. 
but there's more than 2,000 verses about money. So this is the show me stuff, because you can talk a good talk, but your heart is where your treasure is. I think about the, 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 the story of the rich young man who comes to Jesus a lot. He's talking to Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus. He wants to know how to be part of this movement. He sees the activists. He sees the people fighting for freedom, fighting against the yoke of oppression. And he wants to help and do it well. And he says, Master, what do I have to do to enter into the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, you know, follow the commandments. But this guy, he's not interested in that. He, he wants to be like the best. So he says, of course, Jesus, but what about me specifically? You know, me as an individual, special and unique person. And Jesus kind of squints at him and chuckles and says, yeah, this guy's got no idea what he's asking for. You specifically? You? Oh, whoa. Okay. Uh, yeah, you, uh, you, you lack one thing. Go and sell everything that you own and give the money to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven and you can come and follow me. This love that Jesus is giving to him, this sort of hard love, the Greek is agape, it means a discriminating kind of love. A love with specificity, born out of familiarity. I love dogs, I might say. Generally speaking, dogs are neat. But I love my dog Daisy, a little troublemaker, in a very specific way. My love for Daisy is more specific than my love for dogs in general. This is agape love. The love that Jesus shows to that young ruler is very specific. I suspect that Jesus is afraid for this young man because he's not afraid that he's going to burn in hell or something like that. He's afraid that he'll waste his life. Recall what Jesus says at the end of the Gospels of today. He says, do not rejoice at this that the evil spirits of the world submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven, that that is the highest possible good, the greatest achievement we can acquire. Well, that wealthy young man might not learn how to follow Jesus. He might never find his way into the kingdom of God because he's going to be distracted by his first love, his love of money. So um, there's a lovely kind of metaphor at the tail end of the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, one of Steven Spielberg's greatest. The end, um, it's going to have some spoilers, but that movie came out like f f 35 years ago, so if you haven't seen it by now, I have no sympathy for you. <laughs> at the end, there's this treasure room, and it's filled with all of this sparkling treasure. The bad guys and the good guys, they're there to find the Holy Grail, the cup that Jesus drank out of at the Last Supper. And there's hundreds of cups. They have to pick the right one, these hundreds of cups. Most of them are sparkly and got gold, and some of them not so much. And if they drink from the right cup, they get glory, wellness, health, healing, choosing the wrong cup, while instant death by turning into a spooky dust mummy. Seriously, I was like eight years old when I saw that scene, and it really messed me up. I don't know why Spielberg has to end all of those films with people getting their faces like melted off and stuff. Anyway, they have to pick a cup. And the dilemma they face by everybody who stands before Jesus Christ in the Gospels, who wants to be part of the 70, who wants to be sent, who wants to know that their mission is important, who wants to know that they're going to succeed at doing the Jesus movement is similar. They have to pick a cup. Pick a deity. Pick a path. 
Pick an object of worship, but choose wisely. That rich young man who approached Jesus picked a cup covered in diamonds and rubies. He picked the wrong cup. Now, in the movie, the bad guys choose the wrong cup and they get turned into dust mummies. But our hero, Dr. Indiana Jones, chooses a simple cup. He says, the cup of a carpenter. And the rest is falling action and dead then one man. But Jesus is saying, choose wisely. He's preparing the 70 by telling them, you don't need money to accomplish the things for which I'm sending you. You need only the resiliency and trust that comes with accepting other people's hospitality. Accepting that strangers in these towns that you are going to enter will welcome you and will feed you, will take care of you. Okay. He's not being coy, friends, when he says the first will be last and the last will be first. It's got little to do with how much you have and so much more with how much you give. He's talking about people that the world holds in the highest esteem may be the last to enter the kingdom of God and that those who the world holds in the least esteem, as many seem to take on the scorn and burden and meanness of the world, are first in the kingdom of God. Does that mean that we need to be physically poor in order to get into the kingdom of God? Absolutely not. But, you know, be careful who you spend your time with. He says wealth, he never says that wealth prevents people from knowing the presence of God, but it can become a barrier. And when he sends the 70, he very specifically sends them without that barrier. So, I hold that you will learn more about the reality of the kingdom of God in a soup kitchen than you ever will in a country club. Now, nothing against country clubs, right? But they're not intended for our religious edification. Strain at gnats, swallow a camel, Jesus says. You know, he knew the camel was good eating. He probably ate more than one camel in his day. Find out where we're trying to push that camel through the needle's eye and then take a break and let our eyes train onto the heavens wherein we want to see our names written, focusing on the important stuff. Not our material condition, but rather that our names be written in heaven. Folks, you couldn't ask for a better church than this one to do that work. This is a congregation of high expectations, accountability, and ministry. Let this place, this holy place that we call St. John's Church, let it guide you away from false deities, materialism, and all of the things, all of the camels that are preventing us from doing ministry, all of the empty promises, and back toward the things that really matter. Continue to be present with one another and be honest with yourselves. And God will continue to bless this congregation on its journey. Amen? Amen.